All right, so tonight, well, last week we studied uh, the first miracle, the wedding at Cana. And during the course of that, we, we started talking a little bit about um, uh, the disciples' involvement in that wedding. And Ben made a great point about how, uh, Ben Hogan made a great point about how this uh, event fits in the context of the rest of, of Jesus' story. And maybe the uh, disciples had experienced some other miracles prior to the wedding at Cana. And after, after he said that, I realized I skipped a lesson in this series that I intended to precede the wedding at Cana, and, but I had it written down in my order of lessons incorrectly. And so tonight, I want to backtrack a little bit, and, and all I want to focus on this evening is the disciples. In fact, we're just going to refer to them as the first disciples. We're not talking about every disciple. We're talking about the original group that Jesus recruited. And here's why we're going to do this, because if you study the four Gospels, you may feel like there's conflicting reports about how these individuals came to be disciples. So I want to start with Matthew's Gospel. If you'll turn there with me to Matthew chapter 4, we're going to look at, at Matthew's very brief account about the original followers of Jesus. We will follow, follow that up by reading Mark's account because they are nearly identical. And then what we're going to do tonight is try to piece the stories we have about these initial disciples together so that we kind of maybe have an understanding, uh, a possible explanation about how all these stories fit together. So Matthew chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 18 through 22. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now Mark's account, which appears in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, is nearly identical. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So both of those accounts are, are very similar. And that's our general perception of how Jesus obtained his initial followers. But then there are a couple of other accounts that are quite interesting in how they correlate with this or how they don't seem to correlate with this. So what I want to do tonight is, with this as our starting point, I want us to start to consider how did Jesus gain his first followers and at what, at what point did they become full-time disciples? And by no means am I trying to undermine the immediacy of what you're reading here, and I'll explain that more in a little bit. But first, 
I want to take us to the cross because there's something in the narrative of the crucifixion that when you compare it among all the Gospels might open a window into a possibility of how some of these disciples initially came in contact with Jesus. You see, there might actually be, oh no, I forgot to, I sent the wrong file over, so my fonts are going to be messed up, this is going to look horrible. Um, There is initially, uh, hold on, I lost my train of thought. There is a potential family relationship between Jesus and some of these first disciples. And I want to show you that possibility as we get started, because that has a bearing on their interactions, uh, their uh, associations with, with him and, and how long they've known him, that sort of thing. Now, we already have established that John the Baptist is a relative of Jesus. We typically think in terms of cousin, but we, I don't believe we ever are told exactly their relationship. Particularly, we're never told exactly what Elizabeth and Mary were, just that they were relatives. And it's just kind of assumed in some fashion that, that they would be cousins, maybe, second, maybe Elizabeth and Mary are first cousins or something like that, and then uh, Jesus and John the Baptist would be second cousins. But there is a, a, a definite family relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist. So I'm not talking about John the Baptist. I'm talking about the initial disciples and Jesus. And I want to show you this by putting up three different passages from uh, the Gospels for you to look at a list of names. And these lists appear at the cross. So let's start with Matthew. If you go to Matthew chapter 27 and look at verse 56, we're told in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 56 that there are three women who are at the crucifixion. And, and they are identified as Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and then finally, number three, the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now let me just ask you this. The mother of Zebedee's sons. Who would you naturally conclude that that is? Did we see the name Zebedee at all in our study so far? And who is Zebedee? James and John's father. Now, if this is the mother of Zebedee's sons, then who is she the wife of? This this is not rocket science. It's okay. You're not going to get this one wrong, I don't think. So, by implication... It seems that the names of James and John, the apostles, the names of their parents are Zebedee, and we don't have the mother's name yet. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. But it seems that we have a reference to both their parents in Scripture. Zebedee was there when they left the boat, and their mother is present at the cross. At least that's the inference we we naturally make, because... We see no other Zebedee mentioned in Scripture. I mean, it's possible there's another Zebedee around, and, and this is a totally different woman. But it also is quite possible that she is the mother of James and John. Let's move on to Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 15, and verse 40, it too identifies three women at the crucifixion. But this is Mark's list of those three women. He starts with Mary Magdalene, who we've already seen the name of. And number, the second one he mentions is Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph. 
Now, that's not too different from what Matthew said. It just adds that title, the less. But otherwise, still the same. And then the third one mentioned is Salome. Now, it's possible that he's referencing somebody we don't know. But being that Matthew and Mark have so many similarities in their text, we just read the account in Matthew and Mark of the calling of the first disciples, and they were almost identical. It's often believed that, that Matthew may have used Mark's gospel in the writing of his, or vice versa. And so, it's possible, at the very least, that we just obtained the first name of Zebedee's wife, of James and John's mother. It may be that Zebedee married Salome, and that Zebedee and Salome had two sons or more, but the two that we know of named James and John. I think you can follow me along that line for right now, without much complication. Does that make sense to you right now? That it's possible that Salome might be the proper name of Zebedee's wife. All right, now we've got to skip over to John chapter 19 for the final list of names that appear at the cross. And John lists four. But it shouldn't be a surprise to you because there's one very prominent individual not identified in Matthew and Mark as it being at the cross. Anybody want to take a guess at who that is? Mary, Jesus' mother. So John, in John chapter 19 and verse 25, will identify four women at the cross, starting with Jesus' mother. Never says Mary, but it, we know who that is. And then his second name that he puts up there is Mary Magdalene. We've seen that name. The third name he includes is Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, we have not been introduced to Clopas yet. But we have heard the name Mary before. Could it be that Mary, the wife of Clopas, is the same Mary identified in Matthew and Mark as Mary, the mother of James and Joseph? Could it be that James and Joseph's mother, or excuse me, is, is Mary and their father is Clopas? And then finally, number four, the text actually says Jesus' mother's sister. What does that amount to? Jesus' aunt. Now, that person is never identified for us. But I want you to ponder this for just a moment. We know Mary Magdalene is mentioned in all three Gospels. We have a Mary mentioned in all three Gospels. And if, it's this, if it is indeed the same Mary who is the mother of James and Joseph that is the, the wife of Clopas, then could it be that the mother of Zebedee's sons is named Salome and she's Jesus' aunt? It's just a possibility, but it's a very intriguing one for me. And so I look at that and I think, is it possible that James and John are Jesus' first cousins? And if that's the case, that opens up a whole new appreciation for the relationship Jesus has with James and John, who are two of the three of his inner circle of friends. I mean, think about it this way, and I know you can't read that because I sent the wrong file and now my fonts are messed up. If James and John are Jesus' cousins, 
they may have been acquainted with him. I can't even read that now. They, <laughs> they may have been acquainted with him in some fashion prior to his baptism, just like John the Baptist. And if James and John are Jesus' cousins, and their mother is Jesus' aunt, then this may explain why their mother, Jesus' aunt, made the request for them to have preeminent seats in the kingdom over in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20. And if James and John are Jesus' cousins, this may explain why Jesus assigned John, his cousin, the task of caring for his, Jesus' mother, who would be John's aunt, shortly before his death in John chapter 19 verse 27. All I want you to take away from this little uh, diagram of the relationships uh, or the women that were at the uh, crucifixion is that there is this possibility that Jesus is related to James and John. And if that possibility is true, it creates a whole new understanding of the dynamics between him and those two particular apostles. And so it may be that James and John knew Jesus before they were ever called to follow Jesus. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they believed him to be the Messiah before that point. We know from Scripture that Jesus' siblings didn't believe that he was the Son of God initially. I mean, maybe the same issue exists for his cousins. But, if that possibility exists, it does, help, it does create a, a different appreciation for how they came to know Jesus. Now, that's one thing I think is worth considering when we, when we examine how these disciples came to follow Jesus. But I think we also need to turn our attention, with this in the back of our mind, we need to turn our attention to John chapter 1. So we read this, or we referenced this last week as we studied the wedding at Canaan, because these verses lead up to that, that first miracle in John chapter 2. But let's read again um, John chapter 1. We're going to read verse 35 through 51, then we'll talk about it. So the, it begins in John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to, to, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this is a very different telling of how these first disciples began to follow Jesus, at least for two of them that are mentioned in Matthew and Mark's gospel. For in John's account, we find out that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, and that Andrew left John the Baptist to start following Jesus. You see, John had two disciples. We know Andrew was one. And once they heard John proclaim and identify Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and we didn't read that verse, but it was back in verse 29 of John chapter 1. And once they heard John identify Jesus as the one who ranks before him in verse 30 of John chapter 1, And once they heard John retell witnessing Jesus' baptism, particularly how the Spirit descended on Jesus, and that was his way of, that was the sign he was given for him to be able to identify the Messiah. Once they heard him say that back in John chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, and once John again identified Jesus as the Son of God in John chapter 1 and verse 34, they left John and started following Jesus. They got the message from John. And so Andrew started following Jesus when he heard John proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Now here's the thing. I pointed this out last week and uh, probably spent more time on it than I should have, but if you notice in John's Gospel, from John chapter 1, I believe it starts in verse 16 and runs through for the first verse of chapter 2, he goes through a pattern of And he tells what happens on this day and then says the next day, the next day, the next day. And if we really look at it, he covers an entire week. I find that very fascinating in the context of understanding who the first disciples were because as John is is in particular recording his gospel, even though John's not the greatest on chronology, he seems to care about it in this chapter. And these events happen In John chapter 1 and chapter 2 is such quick succession. The next day, the next day, the next day. They happen in such quick succession that it seems that this is the retelling of how it all began. It all began with Andrew and one other disciple of John's leaving John to follow Jesus. In fact, it's very interesting when they start following Jesus. Jesus asks, "What, what do you want? And they respond, Rabbi. It's a signaling, a signaling that they want him to become their teacher, that they want to become his disciple. So it really does seem that John 1 is the origin of these disciples in particular. Andrew, who is identified in the text as a disciple of John, And then what Andrew does is he immediately goes out and recruits his brother, Simon, who Jesus will rename Peter. 
And so those two we have this background of that doesn't involve a walk by the Sea of Galilee, at least not yet. Those two. The other individuals mentioned in John chapter 1 are Philip and Nathaniel. Who is surprisingly absent right now as uh, numbered among the first disciples? When you go back to Matthew and Mark, who were the four? Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Surprisingly not mentioned here. Well, here's the thing. We still don't know the name of that second disciple that left John to follow Jesus. And there are traditionally two uh, individuals promoted as that second disciple. Many think it was John. And here's why. In John's gospel, John never identifies himself. John will use titles for himself. He systematically avoids being named or identified throughout the entire text of his own gospel. So he'll refer to himself as the beloved disciple in several passages, or the other disciple, or, the, or another disciple. So maybe he's just the second disciple right now. He doesn't feel the need to name himself. It may be that Andrew and John are the two that left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. And if Andrew's running out to get his brother and John was the second disciple, don't you think he'd run out and get his brother too? Especially since we do know that the four of them work together. Now the other individual that is often associated with this unnamed disciple is Philip. And that's simply because Philip is mentioned in the immediately the, the, the following section of the text. Immediately after uh, uh, Andrew goes and gets Peter, the next thing we read is that Philip is being called by Jesus to follow him. So a lot of people will contend that Philip was that unnamed second disciple. It's also worth mentioning that in John's gospel, Andrew and Philip are often named in tandem together. They're, they're often associated with each other when they appear in the text. Andrew and Philip get more uh, name uh, reference in John's gospel than the others. Uh, in, in particular, if you go to John chapter 6 and read about the feeding of the 5,000, those two play a, a prominent role there and are named in conjunction with each other, also in John 12. The other thing that's worth pointing out is that we're told Philip is from the same town as Peter and Andrew. So essentially, he's a neighbor of Peter and Andrew. So there's another unique uh, dynamic of relationship, which we'll actually explore further on a lesson where we actually dive into the 12 apostles. And what ends up happening, if, we're, if another Philip is a, a, a great possible candidate, is because he does basically the same thing Andrew does. Andrew goes out and gets his brother, Peter. Philip goes out and gets somebody named Nathaniel. We're never told their relationship. They could be related as family, or they could just be friends or neighbors. We don't exactly know. But the, that pattern seems to suggest that maybe Philip was that second disciple. And he went and got Nathaniel just like Andrew went and got Peter. And you should know that it is believed that Nathaniel's alternate name in the other Gospels is Bartholomew. So when you memorize your apostle list, 
and I'm hoping most of you can still recall it from time to time, you're never going to, if you're singing it to the tune that we grew up with, you're never going to announce Nathaniel. You're going to announce Bartholomew usually. So, um, But Nathaniel and Bartholomew seem to be the interchanged ones because you never have those two names in the same list or in the same gospel. Anyway, so we have the possibility with John's gospel, John chapter 1, here's the origin account. Andrew and an unnamed disciple who could potentially be John or Philip are following John the Baptist. And John the Baptist essentially says, hey, go follow this guy. This guy is the one I came to prepare for. So they leave John the Baptist, they start following Jesus. And then upon uh, uh, discovering Jesus and following him and spending the evening with him, Andrew runs out and gets Peter. Now Peter's added to that group. If it's John, he may have run out and gotten James. We don't have any uh, details to suggest that, but that's just a hypothesis. And then if it's Philip, we do know that Philip ran out and got Nathaniel. By the end of John chapter 1, we know we've got four. Peter, Andrew, Nathaniel, and Philip. And here's the thing. We know James and John are co-workers of Peter and Andrew, and they reside in the same town as Peter, Andrew, and Philip. So there's a lot of interconnectedness here. So it's quite likely, quite possible, that you have six guys by the end of John chapter 1 with two of them going unnamed. Speaking of James and John in particular. So John gives us a totally different account of how these guys became disciples than Matthew and Mark. But that leaves us kind of in a, in a semi-bind, if you will, as we feel the need to understand how this connects with Matthew and Mark's account of walking by the Sea of Galilee. Before I dive into that, I want us to consider the events that are going to happen, potentially happen, between John chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1. It's very interesting when you start looking at the chronology in the synoptic gospels. We have reason to believe that the before the walking by the Sea of Galilee and calling the disciples to follow them, we have reasons to believe that the wedding at Cana happened because of John's timetable of this day, the next day, and on the third day, all that language seems to indicate that those events of John chapter 1 and the early part of John chapter 2 happened in quick succession. And so we have the, 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 the additions of Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel for sure happening in John chapter 1, and then immediately we're going into the wedding at Cana, which is his first sign. So before we get to the walking by the Sea of Galilee, it seems that the wedding at Cana would have happened. But that wouldn't be the only event that happened. This is significant, though, because we're told at the end of the um, wedding at Cana that his disciples believed. It's John chapter 2, if you are looking there. And you look at verse 11, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's almost as if the wedding at Cana is being set up as this critical moment where these initial disciples we've been introduced to have come to the point of, of real faith that he is the son of God. Now, there are some other events that seem to precede that walk by the Sea of Galilee. 
So I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 4 with me. Luke chapter 4. See, Luke's chronology is a little different than Matthew and Mark's. But if you have ever studied the book of Luke, one thing that stands out is in the first four verses, he talks about all the research he did. I, I like that about Luke. I like some good research. I like it when somebody can tell me their sources or tell me how they went about coming up with their information because I, I, I'm not one that likes to subscribe to the they said. Whenever my wife says they say this, I ask who they is. It frustrates me. Because how do you know they're an authority on anything? So, Luke explains that he's a researcher. That he has consulted other sources to develop this particular gospel. That causes me to tend to think he tried very hard to sustain an order or a chronology. And it's very interesting that on, one, on a few particular stories, his chronology will differ from Matthew and Mark, who are so similar. And this is one of those instances. If you look at Luke chapter 4, verse 38 and 39, here's what we read. And Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now here's what's fascinating. In Luke's gospel, Jesus won't walk by the Sea of Galilee and, and talk to these guys and call them to be fishers of men until Luke chapter 5. And so in Luke's chronology, the healing of Peter, Peter's mother-in-law happens before he's called to be a disciple on that seashore. And so it's quite possible that not only have these initial disciples witnessed the wedding at Cana before they're called on the seashore. So some of them, at least, have witnessed Peter's mother-in-law be cured. And think about that. That's going to be significant in the development of Peter's faith. Now, Mark and Matthew do place the healing of Jesus's, no, I'm sorry, of Peter's mother-in-law after the calling along the seashore. But Luke places it before, and so I that might be significant. The other thing that Luke does is he tells a story about that day on the Sea of Galilee that Matthew and Mark don't include. And I want us to read that story here in just a second. It's the story of the miraculous catch of fish. So if you turn to Luke chapter 5, look at verse 1 through 11 with me. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, "'Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch.' And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. 
They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, there are a lot of similarities between this account and Matthew and Mark's account. But there's a significant story in this that Matthew and Mark leave out, and that's this catching of the fish. I want you to think for a moment about what really is transpiring here. Because Jesus shows up along the seashore, according to Luke's account. He's got a crowd with him that he's teaching. And the first thing Jesus does, we're told in verses 2 and 3 of of Luke chapter 5, the first thing he does is he finds these two boats. He goes out into one of the boats, choosing Simon's of all people, and asks Simon to put the boat out a little ways, just a little ways from the land. What happens here is that Jesus used Peter's boat and the natural landscape along the Sea of Galilee to create an amphitheater-like environment. In other words, Jesus boarded Peter's boat so he could be better heard by the crowds that were still on the shore. Now what's fascinating about Jesus' decision is that at first glance it appears that he did this just so he could communicate with the crowds more clearly. But the reality is that while he's teaching those crowds on the shore, he's simultaneously teaching Peter. Because Peter, as one author said, was a captive audience as he sat on that boat with Jesus, listening to the word of God being proclaimed. You see, by getting in Peter's boat, Jesus made Peter have to pay attention. So I don't think that Jesus boarded Peter's boat just so he would be heard by the crowd. I think he boarded Peter's boat so he would be heard by Peter as well. And we don't know, maybe Andrew was on board too. Maybe James and John rode out there with him. We we don't know exactly. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus' move here was more intentional than we give him credit. And notice, how did Peter respond when Jesus got on his boat? Did he complain? Did Peter get frustrated? Did he take exception? Did he order Jesus to get off his boat? Did he assert his rights as captain and owner? No. It's interesting because this guy gets on his boat and Peter immediately took orders from him. A stranger gets on his boat, and Peter's doing exactly what that stranger says. But what if he's not a stranger? What if all these events in John had already happened? What if uh, Peter had already 
come to meet Jesus and have his name, name changed from Simon to Peter? What if he's already gone to the wedding at Cana? What if he's already witnessed his mother be healed? And, and, and what if now when Jesus shows up on the shoreline, they know each other? And so when Jesus asks for Peter to row out a little bit so he could use that boat for a, essentially a, a microphone, if you will, Peter's more than willing to do it without hesitation because he knows who this guy is. And then notice the second thing Jesus does after he finishes talking. Jesus gives another instruction to Peter. In verse 4 of Luke 5, he told Peter to put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So Jesus commandeered Peter's boat without Peter's objection. All because it would aid his teaching. But now, after he finishes teaching, he turns to Peter and he's telling Peter how to do his job. How well do you take it when somebody who is untrained in your field of expertise tells you to do your job? Charlie, do you like that? Because I see a grill on your face. <laughs> All right, Jake, quit telling him what to do. Look at how Peter initially responded to Jesus' instruction to launch out into the deep. Verse 5, he said, Master, that's an interesting term for a stranger, isn't it? Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. What's Peter saying? He's saying that Launching out there, that's against his better judgment. And I want you to think about why that's against his better judgment. To launch out again is against his better judgment because he's, number one, exhausted. He specifically indicated that he had unsuccessfully toiled all night. And apparently the, that dragnet style of fishing that they would do was most successful when it was dark. So Peter... Andrew, James, and John, who are all working together, they spent a grueling night of fishing with no prospects of a profit. That means they're physically fatigued, psychologically defeated, and quite possibly emotionally frustrated. It's against his better judgment to go back out there because he's exhausted. But it's also against his better judgment to go back out there because they have already ended their work day. Before Jesus boarded the boat, we're told that the fishermen had gone out of their boats and they were washing their nets. They were cleaning up for the day. They were checking out. They were done. And now Jesus is saying, get back out there. They've got to load everything back on the boats. They've got to get all the gear back together. They've got to get all the crew back together. They had already prepared to go home. And they were going about the necessary chores to conclude their workday. The last thing they're going to want to do is start fishing all over again. Because guess what? That means you've got to start the cleanup all over again. So it's against Peter's better judgment to go back out there. And it's against his better judgment to go back out there because, as I've already mentioned, he's the fishing expert. He and James and John and Andrew have made a career out of fishing. They 
own a fishing business. This is their job. This is how they pay the bills. This is how they put food on the table. They know that the best time to fish was at night. In their minds, they're the professionals in this arena. Jesus' occupational training was in carpentry, not fishing. So why should they listen to him? And as you study the Gospels, you get a glimpse into Peter's character. Here's a guy who can snap at a moment. Jesus says, hey, I've got to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there. Peter's like, no, you're not going to die. I'm not going to let that happen. Get behind me, Satan. Peter's the guy who's in the garden with Jesus. People come up to arrest Jesus. What does he do? He starts trying to cut off people's heads. Do you really think that's the guy who's going to be okay with some stranger hopping on his boat telling him to go fish who's never had any experience fishing? But maybe it's not a stranger. Because Peter did not conclude his conversation with Jesus with the mentality that we're not going to do this. He says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But then if you look at verse 5, again, in the second half of that verse, he says, But at your word, I will let down the nets. See, I don't think Peter's going to go back out there and let down the nets unless he has some indication of who that is on his boat. Maybe he's seen him turn water into wine, remove a fever from his mother-in-law. Maybe he's had some indication already. And there's a couple things that are interesting to me. One, as has already been mentioned, these fishermen had worked all night without any results. So when they heeded Jesus' and Jesus's instruction to set back out on the lake to uh, fish again, they're acting on faith. They were trusting that he could do something out there. I think what's happening here is they followed Jesus back in John chapter 1. They've witnessed a few miracles, and now he's putting them to the test before he takes them on as disciples. Do you really have faith in any circumstance? You're exhausted. You're ready to go home. You're packing up. And now I'm telling you to go back out there. Do you have faith that I can come through here? Because if you don't have faith in that, you may not need to be my disciple. I wonder if that's part of the process going on here. The other thing I, I think is interesting is that Jesus, think about this, Jesus could have brought the fish to shore if he wanted to. He could have made things easily accessible for them. But that wasn't Jesus' forte. I mean, this is the guy who fed 5,000 plus people with a couple of sardines and a few pieces of bread. And this is the guy who healed a woman with his clothing. And this is the guy who stopped a storm just with his words. He could have brought the fish to the fishermen. But I think he's sending them out because he wants them, if they're going to be his disciples, to get an illustration of what their job is going to be. Because as we see at the end of this passage in Luke chapter 5, in verse 11, or in verse 10 actually, from now on you will be catching men. 
I think the whole event in Luke chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, is Jesus preparing them for the call to be a disciple. And so how do we reconcile the the Luke 5 passage with the John 1 passage with the Matthew 4 and the Mark 1 passage? Here's my answer to that. I believe the calling of the initial disciples, which includes Peter, Andrew, potentially James and John, as well as uh, Philip and Nathaniel, I believe it occurred after John the Baptist, uh, uh, occurred when John the Baptist sent them off to follow Jesus. I also think, or at least some of them off, I should say. It's also worth mentioning that by the time we read of in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, about Jesus walking along that shoreline, John the Baptist has already been imprisoned. John the Baptist is imprisoned in Matthew chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, and in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. His imprisonment is mentioned before the walking by the Sea of Galilee. So the events of John chapter 1 had to precede walking by the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, I could have said that a lot longer ago, and this would have been a much shorter class. But where's the fun in that for me? It's also worth mentioning that Jesus' preaching work, his preaching ministry, preceded his walk on the Sea of Galilee, which gives credence to the Luke 5 passage where he's showing up, getting on the boat to preach to an audience. In, in Mark chapter 1, and verse 15, and Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 through 17, we already have mention of Jesus preaching, that that's, his, that's what he's doing, and it precedes the account of him walking by the Sea of Galilee and calling those disciples. So it gives credence to Luke's account of him showing up and using that boat as a, a platform to preach from. So the original disciples, the six that I've mentioned, uh, or some composite of those six, likely became believers in Christ during the um, events of John chapter 1 and 2. They briefly returned to their secular lives. Then they were called to become fishers of men once Jesus' ministry was ready to take off. That's my understanding or my theory of how these things tie together. Now, here's my one question to close this out with. Does the initial disciples' previous interactions with Jesus diminish the immediacy of their response to follow him. If you recall when we read Matthew and Mark's accounts, the thing that just stands out and is so amazing about the initial disciples is that when Jesus said, follow me, they left everything and followed him. Right then, right there. Is that diminished by the fact that they may have known him before he said, follow me? Not in my eyes. Because once he requested their discipleship, they did not hesitate. Think about those would-be disciples you can read about in Matthew chapter 8. Luke chapter 9, three guys that would be approached by Jesus or that would volunteer themselves to Jesus. And they, Jesus would say, follow me. And they'd be like, oh, wait, I got to do this first or I got to do that first. Or, I got to go take care of this. Or, or they would say, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And then he would 
he would respond to that, and they would say, oh, hold on, not yet. You have examples of guys in Scripture who receive the call to follow, and they hesitate, but not the initial disciples. Not the initial disciples. Even Luke chapter 5, verse 11 says that when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything and followed him. Did you leave everything to follow Jesus? I'm certain you left some things to follow Jesus, but did you leave everything? These guys gave up their careers. To some degree, gave up their families. When you remember James and John left their dad with the boat. How do you think dad felt that day? I don't think it diminishes their response at all. Because how many people do you know today that have heard the word of God, that know what to do, and yet still hesitate? How many immediate responses do you get to see today? Now, don't get me wrong, there are some. But we're often like Peter. It's against our better judgment at times. So tonight, all I wanted to do was provide some sort of synopsis of these different accounts of the disciples, the initial disciples following Jesus, and maybe show how they could mesh. And I think it's important to do that from time to time because some people like to point out discrepancies in Scripture. Some people like to say, oh, wait, if John says that they began following him like this, and Matthew and Mark says they began following him like this, and Luke says it like this, the Bible is contradicting itself. It can't be trusted as I attempt to fall backwards. But I think if you do careful study of God's Word, you will always find how it meshes together. And so that was part of my objective tonight. I hope you've appreciated the study, even if you thought it was unnecessary. It's fun for me, regardless. So let's close. Well, let me actually stop right there. Any questions, comments, observations, debates, ridicules, arguments? Brother Iverson. I, I, I wonder, how does that Luke 5, 1 through 11, does that relate today? Are we are we willing to leave all to follow Christ? It's a very good question. I think about that. I even look at my family. Are, are we willing? I don't mean I don't mean we have to go out and uh, you know start selling stuff and giving this away, but how do you how do you put that in context for us today? That's a great question. And I know you're awaiting a response. <laughs> I feel like I should defer to you on that one, honestly, but I would say, yes, I'm right behind you, Jesus. I'm just going to drag this boat along with us because we 
That is very much a modern-day mindset. Yeah. That is a very uh, 21st century mindset towards discipleship. Um, but how do we put that in, into context today? I think there's a lot of things that... Let me, ref, let me back that up. We don't always grasp the total commitment that we're being called to give to Christ. We, we are a people who live in partial commitment territory. Do you ever have somebody invite you to something and your first response is, i got to check the calendar. And sometimes you legitimately mean that. And sometimes you're just covering your rear end in case you don't want to have to go. We, we are commitment phobic to a large degree. We... we, we we like to have the freedom or the option to bail on something when it gets too difficult. And so, so in college, there was always this time in the semester where you could drop that class and it not affect your grade. It was fascinating to see how many people would go drop classes on that, before that day. On that, de that deadline, they go drop the classes because they've already got a D or an F and they don't want to do the work to pick it up, or they don't want to uh, stress over it. Because we aren't commitment-driven like these guys, to some degree. And I believe that that is one of the most important elements, and I, I, I believe Ben has an element of this in his uh, course he does on, on, on uh, teaching us how to engage in personal Bible studies. I believe one of the most important elements of any study with somebody as you're leading them to Christ is getting them to understand commitment. It's, it's very important to get them to understand what they, what they need to do, but they need to understand the level of commitment they're making too. And I often have parents will come up to me and say, hey, uh, my child is quite young but wants to get baptized. And you can sit down with that child and ask them all the necessary questions. And they can answer all of them. Because they're intelligent, they've listened, they've paid attention in their Bible classes, in the sermons. They know all the right answers, and that's wonderful, and that's necessary. But then you start asking questions about commitment. Think about this. What is the age range, and I know we're running out of time, what is the age range we typically associate with most people who are brought up in the church getting baptized? What do we call the age of accountability? Anybody want to give me an age range? We put it around 12. Does that sound fair? Oh, we put it around the bar mitzvah, don't we? Well, that's because Jesus' bar mitzvah was coming up. Would you let a 12—listen, I was baptized at 9— I've never second-guessed my baptism. I think Ben was baptized at nine or eight. Nine. Never, never question is, there are kids that can make that decision and they're good. But how many 12-year-olds or younger do we trust to drive a car? How many do we trust to get married? Even though there was a day and time when you would get married at that age. All I'm saying is, that's why commitment is so important. We, we, we need to get them to understand what they're committing to 
as part of that study about becoming a child of God. That's the, that's the one part that is incredibly hard for a preteen to grasp. And I think it's part of what we've got to communicate to them as we lead them to Christ, in addition to understanding the steps of salvation and things like that. I may have stepped on some toes with that. Uh, if you want to discuss it with me further at a later time, please do. Um, that was kind of a soapbox moment, so please forgive me. Let's close out real quick with a prayer, and then we will dismiss for the evening and go about our way. Heavenly Father, I thank you for another night that we could study, and thank you for the example of your Son. Lord, may we follow in his steps, may we follow his example, and most of all, may we commit like his disciples did to following him. We love you, Lord, and it's through your Son's name we pray. Amen.